friends and welcome to uh season three episode 12 of so poetry um i think that this will probably be the last episode of season three um and i think that the first episode of season four will drop uh later in this month with a return guest um uh, but i will hash out those details later uh because for right now i would like to give all of my attention to uh the conversation at hand with a uh, dear friend and a tremendous poet and all a tremendous musician as well, uh, Stanford Chunk, um, who we've, how long, how long have we known each other? It's been what, like three, like three or four, four years, three, four years, I believe. Um, do you want, before we get into sort of our backstory, do you want to uh, introduce yourself and say a little bit about like who you are and what you're up to? All right, sure. So, yes, I am Stanford <laughs> Chung, and as he mentioned, I am an artist of music and poetry. What do I do? Well, I create things, and I reside in Montreal currently. And oh, you, yeah. you, you are at a um, music. Uh, Conservancy. No, not conservancy. What's the word? I'm actually at McGill University. Oh, okay. It's not really a conservatory, but there is a music department there. Yeah. Okay. And that's you are currently studying at the the music department there? Yep, the music department. Two years in Montreal. Yes. Very cool. Um So this is so going back a little bit, uh to Stanford and Mai's uh, history together, um, you sought me out uh, like three or four years ago to publish a chapbook of yours, um, which I, I can still remember the email very clearly. You said that uh, on the like seventh or eighth page of the Google uh, results, you found my uh, my press's old Tumblr, which is now since defunct. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was like, Anybody who has the like the Herculean perseverance to get to the seventh or eighth page of a Google results, um, like Google search results, is like I I I gotta talk to this person and see if I can I can work with them. Um, so I've been, I guess, like off and on, sort of uh, familiar with and acclimated with your poetry for the better part of like four years, and then really dug into. Um, some, I guess, recent-ish um, poetry of yours, because I, um, for those of you who don't know, um, I run uh, Akinoga Press, and I just, like, maybe less than a month ago, uh, published Stanford's first uh, full-length collection, uh, Structures from the Still, which is the reason that I traveled up to Toronto for the, the book release. But um, my question for you, which is something that I've, I've been curious about since the first time that I, I encountered your poetry, um, what was your first, like, experience and exposure to poetry? Like, when when did that happen for you, and what was that like? So, I began poetry around, I would say, in 
grade 12, that's where I actually perhaps devised my own inspirations to poetry. So how did I get into that? So I mean, I was in an art school and mm-hmm. I did enroll in a creative writing class and I met a friend who aspired to be a spoken word artist and an amazing trumpet player. Oftentimes, he would call me out during lunch to recite some works that he wrote. And at one time, he gave me a book called The Life of the Poet by Lawrence as a gift. And also, I also took a religion course during that time where they asked us to write a poetry journal or to create one and from there my first poems came out and it's like the introverted counter just turned into this forest and bulb and I just couldn't stop writing and like eventually I started I started on a creative writing website I'm not sure if you heard of it it's called Figment and I began publishing poems up there and eventually attempted submitting to poetry journals. There you have it. (laughs) Wow. So it it was a... I'm assuming that you started with music much, much earlier than uh, grade 12, correct? Yes. I. Well, of course, um, my family is a family of musicians, so my dad is a concert violinist and my mom is a pianist. So I started at around age six, I would say. But I never actually took an infatuation or never really took music as something I would do um, seriously until around grade 11. That's where I actually started being serious. So you would say, I would say that both poetry and music almost coincided simultaneously. Okay. Yes. Hmm. So what um, what happened in grade 11 that shifted your uh, I guess perspective of music as a like a, as a viable thing for you to do or just was it was it a question of like passion or uh, interest or well I would say during that time I was enrolled in a program at the conservatory in Toronto and I did meet a professor and Marietta Orlov and from there there is there was something so so charismatic about my prof in that one she she functioned more like a scientist making me understand reflexes, the understanding of the psyche, the anatomy of the hands, the body, mm-hmm. how it works in a rational manner. And in a sense, I would say her cognitive, how would I say, cognitive temperament really complemented a sentimental side, I would say to me. So it was more like a balancing act while working with my prof. And it's been really life-changing. The amount of depth I learned to extracting art from the piano. Yeah. 
Hmm. So. Hmm. I'm not sure how to formulate my next question. Um, <laughs> well, because, like, I... Like, I, I did um, my last... The last episode that I that I recorded, um, sort of like I guess a little bit in prep for this episode, um, was about like my relationship with music and how that correlates um, and sort of like influences and changes my relationship with poetry. And I'm like since since you had been around music for longer than poetry but yet you turned but like music both music and poetry a, a, like awakened for you or awakened into you at around the same time um yes like do you see or have you seen um like a similar a similarity between um or, or similarity or differences or I, I don't know like what like your experience with both poetry and music as, as like creative forces are, do they feel like they're similar processes to you processes to you? Do you, do you attempt to do similar things with like with, with both of them or do they, do they feel like they are, um, I don't know, expressions of like different aspects? Well, I would say, well, when people do ask me if I'm a poet or a pianist, I would, never want to label myself either both of them um, more as I would say I am an artist in which, okay. in which the extensions of my mediums would be music, the canvas of time the decoration of time and the latter being poetry a paintbrush and the extension of the canvas of the written word and how would I say that both of them would coincide in the sense that both of them are an it's, it's an occupational hazard of giving performance a performance of some kind to create something within yourself for example in music creating an imagination that would respect the composer's interpretation and work and being as faithful to the recreation mm. and poetry being a spontaneous drive that really informs or illuminates the objective role to what I do in relation to music. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, you you bring up a point, um, maybe not overtly, but I what you just said made me think of something that I don't know if I've ever really thought about before. That um, so, like like you said, like as as a as a musician or as a strictly speaking as a as a composer, you are potentially in a position where what you write or what you have created will be played by any number of people that are not you like or that will be that will be publicly or privately performed but there, there's some some level of like 
someone else is sort of like adding their authorship to something that you have created. Um, oh yes, when you publish things, obviously you're sending the work out to the world and you really can't have control over what readers would take out of you know, your work. Though there right. are some intentions to my work, vice versa with composers, I think that is what gives it that really spontaneous spark to art, really. Um, I, I'm not sure how to expand on this, but <laughs> much as I can go. Yeah, no, I mean, that 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 makes sense. And I, like, I guess one of the things that I, that I was just thinking about is would you would you equate like a reader reading your poems and forming their own sort of interpretation of, of your words and your sounds as a, as a similar um, process or I guess a similar positioning of someone who, like a, another uh, pianist that is playing a composition that you wrote? Like, do you, do you see those two actions as, as like, analogous to each other? Hmm. Well, for poetry, I more, I more or less see them as a painting. I treat, okay. I treat the medium of poetry very much like painting a bit, as I am inspired by the poet Richard Seiken and how he wrote his second book, and he tried to, the book War of the Foxes talks about how to make meaning. What does it mean to make meaning? And in order to do that, he had to do something with his hands, which was to paint. And from, through painting came out poems that really interrogate his own work. And in that sense, um, not sure, but goes along the lines of that. Okay. So, so for you, for you, the readers of your poetry would be more synonymous with uh, a viewer looking at a painting. Yes. Um, that it's it's more of more of a like a, a passive interpretation. Um, that they're that they they themselves are not adding anything to the painting. They're more just reacting to it. Whereas if someone were playing, like a, a compositional piece that that you created. Like it's, they're they're they are adding something to like the piece that you that you did. Mm. Is well, that yeah. is that more or less correct? Sort of. Well, more like there's more than one way to know your art. Okay. Yes. So I think for poetry, it shouldn't just suffice only as poetry. That poetry could really be viewed. You know, many poets are also artists of different mediums. So mm -hmm. there is more than one perspective on a box to look at it on different sides. So in my poetry, I often view it as a mural, a painting, not only a painting on a visual imperative, but it can also be a painting through soundscape in which mm -hmm. there is a planning of words that really sonically attract the listener. It could be different in that perspective 
through the written word or the spoken the spoken manner in which I read the poems, which often have different effects. Yes, which I can 100% vouch for um, listening to you read at your, uh, your book launch. Um, like after having spent however long that I spent with your manuscript and, and editing your words and sort of like trying to trying to live in them and just like spend my time in there hearing you read them there were things that like fundamentally changed i think with my experience of your poetry having just seen them on the page and then encountering your uh like your your reading of them um which leads me to a another question that i've i've been curious about when when you like execute your more uh i guess like sonic actions in your poems like certain certain words that are that are being put next to each other for the sounds that they create both individually and then when they're together and then sort of you know like the the sounds of the, the words themselves and then the sounds of the words in the line and then the sounds of the line in the poem mm-hmm. is that is that a like intentional conscious decision on your part like do you do you sit somewhere with like a thesaurus in in or sit at a, at a, on a line with a with a thesaurus and work through all the different definitions until you find like a sound of a word that feels like it fits or is that is it more of an intuitional thing that like as you're writing, you know that there is a word that has these set, like certain set of sounds that you want, and it just sort of like it happens. Or it, I mean, it could be. Is it a combination of both? Is it? Is it neither of them? It is more of an instinctual um, okay. intention. More than I can't really explain how my poetry works, and I feel. If I were to understand it, I think I would have a hard time creating. It's more yeah. intuition that I can't explain, though I try to find rhythms in that intuition, which, for one, I know when I write, I write in fragments, which sort of relates to me as a person, which I realize I do sometimes or more often talk in fragments. and. I think it's more of being true to really who you are through that you tap into the intuition. Really it's more of how I speak, I guess, that really informs my poetry in like in an intuitive way. Intuition also comes on many different levels. Though I never dream my poems actually, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> my poems never come out of dreams more more of more of memory recall or okay the connection making connections to unrelated things to delve into a possible topic that would drive perhaps my emotional state to be more intuitive or more sensory that that's the kind of process okay i um it's it's interesting that like I I understand and on a on a personal uh, creative process level agree with you one hundred percent like pretty much everything that you said is 
more or less how I write my own poems, with maybe the exception of like of of the fragments. Um, but it's it's so interesting to me that like we both of us could more or less follow the same essential process, um, and yet come up with poems that deal with very very different things and operate on very very different levels, um, which I think kind of goes back to what you were saying about um you know it's like you have there's there's this process that is that is at work sort of in you creating these things and if if you if you understood it then like it would gum up the works it's one of these things that like it feels like it has to operate like in like underneath the 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 conscious sight or like the the you know that the beam of the, of the conscious mind but I, th- I think that like it's it's your own it's like you have your own a metronome in you somewhere that is clicking out some sort of rhythm or some sort of beat and like that's the thing that you follow and it's probably at a it's set at a different you know BPM than somebody else's um, because it's yours and you know like even or maybe even if someone else's beat at the same you know BPM as yours did just if they think differently or if they you know, if they view the world in a, a different way, then what they create would be radically different. Um, well, oftentimes, I would treat the world as I often see it realistically, but what really defines realism in this world, really, when you can actually reframe many things at once. Give, for example, the piano. The piano can be an instrument. We can also reframe it and say that it is an extraction of sound through nature and the accumulation. We can also say it's accumulation of mankind's work on extracting sound through nature and bending it against nature's will. You know, That mm-hmm. is to say, Things that are realistically normal can be viewed as another type of norm. For example, if something goes out of tune, for example, let's say the piano. Mm -hmm. We call it out of tune, but isn't it really nature's fight to return it back to its original state? (laughs) Yeah. This is, I saw this at the Toronto International Film Festival. Raji Sakamoto, Koda, and you did talk about this, and it really just, that's what made me realize that you can really change, <laughs> you can really change reality in a sense that nothing's really reality, it's just the idea of your own perceptions that inform what you see and what you think. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that, that reminds me of all this thinking, of, or maybe going back a little bit to the introduction of like painting um into this into this conversation but that like that definition or that way of of viewing a piano feels like it's a very like cubist or surrealist way to look at it that you are instead of seeing it as a like a set perspective or as a set reality that like the things that you that you encounter like a piano like the piano that you encounter is the one singular it's like it is a singular thing that exists um 
Yeah, well, yes. If if one were to, I don't know personally. That's why I treat it as an extension, but never something that represents me. Because mm. I feel that obsession in art is good. It's it should be more coined as a love for doing what you do. I think an obsession is a bit dangerous in any medium where. You really just focus on that one subject. You really、mm. try to take it apart, but you never put it in the context of the whole, but just the subject itself. And I feel I should never get into that type of obsession. Yeah, it's it's obsession is a very、um, it's like limiting and it's it's out of balance. And I I feel like like love. For、um, I think is a is a really good way of putting it because that it's a condition. What you say? Yeah. What you say? Um. Yeah. Well, I I think that it's for like something something that I guess an idea that I've I've been thinking about for a while、um, is the like the state or the sense of equilibrium.、Um, so like your own like your own sort of sense of Personal balance, or like every everything, if we talk about like internal equilibrium, like everything in you, all all the different competing elements are at a more or less like there's stability there, and I feel like similar to what you said about、uh, obsessions, like the the danger of that is that it it reduces the like the relationships between stuff. Down to a a single focused point of attention, it's almost like a like a black hole for attention. It's like you just you you're just you keep throwing stuff in into this or at this thing, and it just、yes. keeps eating it up and keeps eating it up, and it 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 reduces and it limits the, your ability to to synthesize and to connect,、um, which feels like that like at at the core of maybe. At least your poetry. I'm I'm not sure about like about your music, but like that idea of taking things that are existence or like emotions or whatever, and like weaving them together to form a perspective that is、uh, like really sort of like even though it is it is I imagine like taken from sources of inspiration or you know there have been people that. Um, you know, like other other musicians or other poets that you've studied that have helped you get to the place where you, that you're at. Like the the just the act of you synthesizing this information together or coalescing it into this thing makes it like yours. It's a it's a thing that is wholly individual to you. Yeah. In the end, we are all vulnerable people, and I think as artists. That truth has to be made、um, in terms of art is anything that is in conversational. You know, if it's sad, it should make you sad. If it's happy, it should bring you to happiness. There is that immediacy that really needs to be made in these perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Which. Like like you just said that like art's conversational, which feels like the the opposite end of the spectrum from 
if we go back to it, like obsession, like that sort of that that singular focus that <laughs> almost to, to the point of disregarding like everything else versus like conversation or things that that are yeah. um, like not not taken separately from other things. Yes. Um, while during my time in Japan, it's where I did realize obsession plays an integral part in how you function really. When you're there, when I was there, I couldn't even touch the piano for a good seven days and I had to give a recital for 30, 40 minutes. Oh, jeez. But it was through there that I really realized what it means to use your mental state to prepare yourself mm. to practice is to really be physical to your art but have we had really had time to mentally reflect on our on the work for example reflect on Schumann that I'm working on <laughs> all there it's more of score studying more of the mental practice of really simulating what I have to do and that is very inspiring what I learned from there that in fact you can really perform if not better by not practicing but <laughs> through being really as I said again vulnerable to do what you have to do and we're all fallible creatures after all it doesn't matter yeah. if you really slip or anything it's normal I mean, is art absolute in the end? No, it's not. There are. It's never complete. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think so. That this is, I think, a, an interesting segue into um, something else that I've, after seeing you or seeing and hearing you read, like the experience of of, of your reading. Um, I've been wondering, do you treat um, like piano recitals or piano performances and readings similarly? Like, do you do you prep for them both in similar ways, or are they like different, like both performances but both doing like different things, and therefore require a different sort of like well uh, preparation ritual? Well, I will say that the headspace of being perhaps a musician and a person who writes poetry during a performance scenario is to embrace the occupational hazard of the idea of performing, knowing that something very private needs to be presented and the act of I would say to listening to oneself is also integral when presenting or giving to an audience, for example, different concert halls or different rooms for reading or performing have different acoustics. It's mm -hmm. almost as if you're tinkering with the timbres every time you have to present something. It's more of a conversation with the audience and yourself well, you know, when one performs on stage, the need 
to express intentions of a composer's music would be integral and the need to express where, you know, in my poetry and music, you know, um, there's a juxtaposing that is very similar in a sense of an artist and it's more of creating yourself, you know, you can't bring what you created on stage, but you have to recreate it once again for that magic, for that spark to really happen in a given space. Hmm. So, like, if you if you were to give a performance, like, let's what's what's a what's a um a like a piano piece that you've played, I don't know. Like, what is there is there one that you've played? more often than you've played other ones? Well, there's one I do enjoy playing, which is Kodai, the Marozek dances, um, a Hungarian composer. So, like, every every time that you play that one, be it for your own, your own practicing or for, for, for a performance, is it, like, do you view that as every time is like the first time that you're playing that piece yes because i feel you can't bring your laboratory onto stage what you do in private is to tinker with sound to tinker with your own technique and to get things right but once you're on stage you can't really bring your lab onto stage you can't bring your tasks on it and expect it. Things are subconscious. You rely on your reflexes to bring out spontaneity. And I think, in a simple sense, just be sensible. Don't, don't think of anything else. Hmm. That's... I'm... I wonder what that would do for poetry readings or just readings in general. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if readers do this. This, this might be a, a good question I, I add to my, my list of, of questions. But I, I wonder what, like, if, if a reader read a poem as if it was the first time that they were ever reading it. Or like present, presenting it that like taking taking the like what you do with with your your performance pieces like you said like all the tinkering all the stuff all the practice that you put into to getting this thing you know like correct you can't like you know that's all that's all sort of like left at the door when you when you walk up to a stage and it's you know like you have yes you have you have the muscle memory you have the the knowledge of of playing this piece many many times before but in that moment you are essentially like this is you're doing this for the first time yeah um, well what fun would it be if you've done it many times it's always <laughs> yeah it's an art about creating things though yeah in that sense oh it, yeah everything is like recreating yeah but that's it's something like i mean imagine that for for like touring bands that's probably the the, the only way that like I imagine that a band can get through a really really long tour is if they treat their performances like that. It's like you know this is the 
like the next the like you play a show one night, you go to the next show, and at that show, it's like Musical. this this is the first yeah this is the first time that we that we're doing this like it, to bring that energy and to bring that like mm-hmm. that that freshness and that um, I don't know like that joy that that experience of like this this is this is the act of creation again. Yes, that's the magic of the subconscious. The magic of the subconscious really just brings you to different places. The closest we can ever get is through our dreams or through an active action, which is called focus. Hmm. When you focus, you're hyper aware of everything. And perhaps that's tapping into a sort of different realm when it comes to wanting to do something beyond our nature yeah Hmm. so you said you said earlier that um your your poems have never come to you in dreams has have has any of the music that you've written come to you in a dream i never write music actually i don't come really (laughs) okay i only write i only write poetry and I only play music by other composers. Huh. Is, was that a, was that a conscious decision or was it a like, well, is there, there... composition has many different rules and in music, of course, I would prefer to be a pianist that performs music rather than creating music. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. I can't really, I can't really compose or that I'm not inclined to do it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I imagine it's, it's the similarity between people that want to be like actors and people that want to be playwrights. You know, it's like there, there are definite, um, draws to either of them and I, you know it's like it's whatever suits your temperament or whatever suits suits your like your skill set mm-hmm. um okay hmm hmm so that like I've, I've, I wonder now, and I like, I don't really have a, a question as a, as a part of this. This is more just me sort of wondering aloud that like, I wonder how our relationship between like music and writing is different, um, in the sense that like you, you are a strictly performative musician, um, and I am almost a strictly like compositional musician, um, because I think I have played my music in public all of maybe maybe twice maybe like one and a half times Mm. um well um so my thoughts would be that both of them are creating things but i think as i said earlier that one poetry because it begins from nothing i have the right to start from scratch to create meaning out of nothing. Yes, yes, yes. Whereas in music, it would be to create, to create or recreate an emotion 
an interpretation that would wholly respect the composer's intentions. Right. Yes. Yeah. I. I didn't. I didn't. I apologize for implying that that performative, um, uh, like strictly performative musicians are not like create or are not actively creating anything. I, I meant more in in just the the, I guess like the the original genesis of of a of a musical piece, not the the sort of like the next tier of. Um, like you said, like the, the, the creation of the emotion or the interpretation or the, yes. um, like the, the space, um, like a, a complementary space for the piece to exist in. Yes. Um, hmm. That's, that's interesting. I, hmm. <laughs> well, no, there, there was just, there are a couple of questions that I think I had maybe in the chamber, but have been sort of like, well, I don't know if this is a question I need to ask now because of our, our, our differences with, with music as a, as a, um, differences in the experience of music as a, as a medium and how, how we, uh, interact with it. But, okay. So when, hmm, have you noticed, um, any sort of like as as you've been writing and as you've been um, like performing music, largely like in time wise in conjunction with each other, like you know not necessarily at the same time, but just you you've been active in both practices, mm-hmm. you know, for largely this you know overlapping chunks of time. Um, have you noticed any any overlap in like your like any sort of like poetic influence on your 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 uh, piano playing or any sort of like piano performance influence on your writing, or do they feel like I mean are they more or less manifestations of like similar aspects of you? Um, they both exist. Ironic similar entities and completely different entities one being that I rarely make any literal um, citations about music in my poetry more or less I use my knowledge or so-called knowledge of music to inform my poetry through sounds and words that's as much as I would go in poetry and as for music I mean both of them require imagination I guess the act of writing would impose to myself attending to my imagination hmm. which okay. informs uh, perhaps what I want to imagine when playing a piece okay so it's like I like I, I don't know if this is, would be a, a a good analogy, but it's like CrossFit or like cross training that you are sent like yeah the, the skills the skills that you've built up in in piano performance have helped you with the like the act of writing or the act of like tapping into those of uh, uh, those imaginative and emotional states. Um, yes, there is a and the landscape. 
the emotional landscape, much of it is created through writing. Though I also have mm -hmm. to thank poetry for also no, I also have to thank music, the piano for also um, broadening both of them seek to inform an emotional landscape. And that's what I try to create, which informs. Mm -hmm. Since in music, it's more respecting the composer's intentions. You can really bring out your own charisma. Mm -hmm. but you bring it out in a very raw manner. Yes, I can do that in the context of performance. I can also do that in, the, in a completely different context, which would be in the written word. So, right. Two different yeah. thoughts. Hmm. So, have like keep keeping, I guess, with the, with the the idea of like the the cross training and the that the the skill set that you've built up being a, a performer. Um, and like trained in that way has helped you in the act of writing have it, it would it also be fair to say that like through the act of writing and through specifically poetry where like specific word choices and like words placed next to each other in very uh, intentional ways has helped you with like let's say there's like a like a phrase in a in a, a piano piece being able, like, being more attuned to, to like, how the, the individual parts or, like, you know, the measures or the, the motifs of, of songs that you're working on influence and contribute to the whole and the sort of, like, the sensitivities in the relationship between those? Um, I've never thought about this, and I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, hmm. I... This would be one of the conversations where I do try to think of both of them together, but really, I see both of them as just art, and um, okay, I can't seem to intentionally draw a connection. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, okay, so if you had, okay, I I, I won't go that far, but. Um, are there, um, have there been either uh, other composers that you've encountered or poets that you've encountered that have like significantly changed the trajectory of both your piano um, performances and your poetry writing? Or maybe even at, at a core, just like have radically and fundamentally changed your idea of or experience with or relationship with like those respective uh, practices for you? I think I will talk more about the poetry. Okay. So, or poetry, again, um, well, one of my first inspirations would be the Canadian poet Phil Hall, which informed my first chapbook, Any Seymour Needlework, which was published by the operating system. And it was my fascin I, I read his book called Conjugation, which was published by Book Thug and <laughs> experimental publisher in Toronto. And through there I was very inspired by how he wrote poetry, that he broke boundaries to what I perceived in the pentameters of poetry, that one word can really exist as a life in itself, 
um, and how fragmentation really plays out well in, like, as you may assume, and it's like, fragmentation could be assumed as something very, very detrimental, but you turn it into a strength, and that's mm -hmm. what Phil Hall really inspired me to do, so I took up the idea of fragmentation to really micromanage every word to give it a little life. So that was one of my earliest influences. Then came about a more... So I would say Phil Hall would be more of the artifice, the, the, the keen intelligence to what words can do. Mm -hmm. Broadening out, I became more warm to poetry, so more sentimental. I often seeked out poets, for example, Ocean Vuong, who is to this day one of my most adored poets, and I read him fondly, much of his articles that he talks about. He has a very, well, he has a very open state, a very a very honest approach to poetry, and this is what I admire about him. For example, I would read his book, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, many times, and just the idea of really forging his own story, his Venomese descent, you know, how he was raised by mothers, the idea of him being homeless on streets, you know, it really humbles me in that sense that you are never afraid to tell your own story. And it is important. And I admire that. Then, I think the third most influential poet would be, yes, Richard Sykin. <laughs> yeah, I knew he was coming. <laughs> Richard Sykin. Well, I actually, the first time I saw Richard, like, like, I found Richard Sykin was in grade 11 in a bookstore. His first book was Crushed, didn't really catch my eye. I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, doesn't interest me. <laughs> Two years later, I, I, I go back again, and I'm at complete awe at, at Richard Sykin's first book, Crushed. You know, Emily Dickinson, you know of its poetry when it, like, you know, when it makes mm -hmm. it cold and no fire can like light, can light your soul or something like that, going along the line. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt with Richard Sykin's crush. And, well, it's... And I've never seen someone who said they don't like it, they don't like any of Richard Sykin's work. Like, everyone who's read his work is, like, at complete awe. And, like, his idea of what he could do with his hands in crush, you know, his tying motives, what he could do with his hands. The word hands shows up probably 50 times throughout the book. Then in his second book, you know, finding the art of <laughs> painting and knowing that there is more than one way to know your art. And Richard Sykin is more like, he's so smart with how he makes relations to meaning that he says in this poem called Logic, in the second book, called 
yeah, in War of the Foxes, it's, it goes along the lines of all thinking is comparison, and you know you can say a bear claw, if you are a human, is a pastry. A bear trap, or a bear, is an inconvenience. It's like the way that he would bring about things. Or a hammer is a hammer if it hits the nail. A hammer is not a hammer when it is sleeping. I grew tired of being a hammer. And it's that, it's that play with, it's as if he has his own mind of his own. And I really admire that intellectual not even intellectual, it's just it's just transcending himself into this state of being that like I can't even fathom and I still <laughs> Yeah, it's like I feel like with with Seekin, um it is a like a, a very individual and personal like voice. I I can't imagine any other poet writing like him. Yes. It's like he, he writes very much like himself, and yet he's able to tap into these things that feel like like well, big capital T truths. He did share his process of writing, which really inspired me, which was one, so he follows two rules. One is, am I the only one who could say this? And two, if the idea has already been said, then choose the best version that has been said and go along with it. And that's how phrases <laughs> work. Hmm. It's it's quite crazy what he thinks of that. It's life changing in that sense. Yeah. Hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to meditate on on those two because I I have a I've been working on a bunch of poems that feel. I mean, most of my poetry is, I guess, more or less autobiographical, but these feel like they're definitely hitting some, some things that I've not really delved into. Um, and I feel like, the, at least his first rules, like, am I, am I the, the, the first person to... I can't say this. Yeah, like, not, not that have I expressed, or has anything been like this been expressed before, but am I the only one that can say yeah. this? Yeah. Um, I think that that will probably be a, a guiding light through the edits of that of, of those of those poems. Yep. I'm actually I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down so I don't forget it. Only one who can underline say this. Hmm. So are are that you choose the best version? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so are you, like, how, how often do you read poetry? Is that like a, a daily thing for you or is it, do you, is it like a spurt? Like you have moments that you read and other times you're like, yeah, I'm going to go. I read quite crazily. (laughs) Um, I dip into a lot of books. My bookshelf probably has like 200 poetry collections right now hanging there and I read a lot I'm quite a avid reader since I really need to understand 
I often choose books that really have a personal world to them. And if mm. I, I will rarely ever buy a book if I don't see a world in what they create, what one creates. And yes, I read a lot. I read in Toronto, like almost every night from a just every time I take the subway, the subway commute from Toronto is like an hour, an hour and a half. So, you know, what would you do in an hour and a half from U of T, University of Toronto, to my home, which is like on the other side of the suburbs? <laughs> <laughs> so, I would, well, I have the app called Pocket, which I download, which I often download a bunch of articles that I can find on Google. Mm-hmm. mainly on poetics and I would read them all while doing my commute so I would I could be proud to say I've read over 1,500 articles <laughs> of poetry <Jeez. laughs> and not saying I remember every single one <laughs> but, but yes it does make me uh, seek out what values to yeah. Well, I f- I feel like I mean even if you don't, if you can't like recall word for word each article, like that still that's it seeps into you, and I'm I'm sure that it's like the things that you've read or things that you've encountered are either in or in some way like influencing stuff that you're doing. Just if it's you know like something that's stuck in your head and you're just your unconscious is just kind of mulling it over and. Um, Wow, man, you you are you put <laughs> you put those commutes uh, to very very good usage. I fall asleep very easily, so <laughs> my mind must be interested in something after all. <laughs> hmm. So when you like when you encounter a let's say a new poetry collection that you are excited to read, how, what is your process of of reading it? Um, so. Usually, I go into a bookstore or a used bookstore. Mm-hmm. I literally take out the book and just feel it. I open the book. In less than three seconds, I can understand whether or not I personally like it or I feel there's a strong voice in it. Almost by five seconds, I would shelf the book back or I would continue reading it on. Hmm. I could go through probably 30 books in five minutes. Um, rarely do I ever like take a book and actually start reading it for a good 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It's like, I really have to see something convincing. Something that really convinces me that they know the poet or the writer, the artist knows their craft. Not only as a firm skill to the craft, it needs to be authentic. That's, that's hmm. what I really look for. Um, so do you do you have a certain set of like conscious criteria that like when you pick up a, a book and you in those like those three to five seconds, or is it more sort of how we talked about your your poetry composition? Is it is it more of sort of just intuitive and like. You know it when you like you feel it when you feel it, and you know when you don't feel it, and if you don't feel it, then it just goes back on the shelf. 
just more or less if I really don't feel it or if when I read it. And I do feel that this has already been said, I put it back into the shell. Okay. More or less. Um, though I know my, I have a particular taste in what I want to read, I, barely, I rarely read. No, I shouldn't say that. More like I just need poetry that is very innovative to my mind. Something okay. that I think beyond the linear. Hmm. I I think that I have a similar process, or I, I like a similar process is conducted when I pick up a, a collection of poetry. Um, I think that it, like I really I couldn't tell you by and large what would cause me to take a book and what would cause me to to put a book back. Um, but it is I think I think that it's similar. Like within within the first maybe like five to ten seconds of, of being with a book, I have sort of just a general sense of like, yeah, this is something that I, I want to, I want to hold on to and, and dig into more. Or like, no, I'm just not, I'm not really feeling it. Yes. Yes. That's really Um, hmm. yes. Okay, so this is, this is a question that I've, I've not, I mean, it's it's on the list that I send out to my to my guests beforehand, but it's not a question that I think that I've asked um, a lot of a lot of my guests. Um, but because I feel like I there's a double duty that you can pull with this with its answer um, or with this question. Is there a preferred or do you have a preferred way for an audience to experience uh, either or both? Your poetry and like a um, a uh, a piece that that you are performing, um, and if there is a preferred way for each of those respective things, what would that be? Okay, so when I perform or when I present art, when I present poetry, it must be devoid of gestures. That is perhaps the first rule I would go to. When I perform a piece, I'm aware of what needs to be said or what needs to be conveyed. Oftentimes, I would see artists or I'm aware of pianists or any other artist that would do unnecessary gestures or movements on the piano mm. to exaggerate what should be, but they would blow it up. And it's more of like a facade, an impression to impress. And I feel like to impress is more like a defense mechanism of being vulnerable. And mm -hmm. oftentimes I feel like to really get an understanding of what you do, you should, one should really be devoid of gestures. Same for poetry that I give what I have to give. I don't think, mm -hmm. I don't think there should be anything more to it. I don't need to speak in a louder voice to project more, more or less a voice I'm comfortable with and really sing in common cadence. 
two feet. Um, and that's what I do. That in both mediums, I can't, or I try to avoid gestures. They must be natural. That's okay. Hmm. Yeah. I oh yeah I'm I I definitely <laughs> I feel like that your definition of that is is a crystallization of of things things that I've I've been thinking about but have not phrased it in that particular way um, yeah but that that idea that like the the thing that you have to say or the thing that you have to perform or the poem that you have to read um, like ideally should be able to to stand on its own like there's there's no real need for a, a performer or a reader to add like accoutrement or flourishes or you know whatever to it to make it more appealing or more impressive like it it should be in its natural unadorned state it should be able to do all of the work that it that it needs to do i feel that would be a manifestation of obsession in that sense you have to create gestures too yeah accentuate an obsession that you want to show to people um, in that sense yes that ties to the obsession part and really I feel it also reflects the mechanical state of artists if they must use gestures um, to really express themselves instead of a wholehearted understanding or transcendence of what one does. Hmm. So, as aside from being uh, devoid of gestures, is there, are there any other um, criteria that that you would have for your like your ideal experience of your of your work, um, or preferred experience? I guess, however, however you want to, either way that you want to take that. I would say it is when we perform and I notice firsthand that we care about ourselves when we perform, how we look, how we look on stage, mm -hmm. how, do, how does the audience perceive me, how do I look when I play, do I look good when I play, do I look good when I read, does my voice sound good? There are so many mm -hmm. things that really bring tension to the self. And there's one thing that really removes all of that, which is simply to acknowledge the audience. And once you do that, art becomes a conversation. Art mm. doesn't become just about yourself. It's not about what you do, but it is an engagement to the audience once you acknowledge it, you begin to see things in a performance or when you read, you begin to be aware of how the audience reacts to you. You don't judge or say, what are they doing? Or like, more or less, you get the full package of what hmm. these Is there... Um... Is there anything that you do specifically um, in either a reading or a musical performance 
to uh, like overtly and consciously acknowledge the audience? Well, one, I don't freeze and say like, oh no, I am performing. <laughs> I go up and it's like, what a beautiful audience. What a, what a beautiful, like, we're human beings. <laughs> I'm not mm. anything of us I'm not anything of a pedestal to really worship. I'm just a person who apparently writes poetry and <laughs> I'm quite insignificant to be really honest, besides an online presence. If the internet didn't exist, I wouldn't exist. It's like <laughs> <laughs> So so it's I guess it sounds like it's more of an, an intention. Like you you are setting a very specific intention um, when you when you perform or when you read, to like as a like to create or to create an equal footing or like dispel any sense of like inequality or inequanimity between you and, and the the people that are that are there to see you. Well, always a suit. I don't know for poetry. I always write as if no one ever is going to read my work, and if mm. people do, I that gratitude same for music <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't want to that. oh like people all know me I just do it for the sake of doing it because I do love music and what plays out really plays out you can't what can be controlled in art hmm Yeah, that's very valid and insightful. It's hmm. more of it's more of stepping away. This is what I mean by always treating things as an extension. Really, to really get the best out of your extensions, it's by understanding yourself first before informing your art. Your art really is, as artists, it is, we have to be very sen sensitive to things. And it's something that can't be compromised, really. You know, um, like I would say a poet, a musician, both of them are like plunder phonics. Plunder phonics is like a mix of different things, so living in the surreal, but grasping the environment to what exists, then you translate it to what needs to be said. It's extend the idea of an extension is never a stagnant identity itself, nor is it a made identity. Anyone can be an artist in both mediums of the written word or music as long as one holds firm to expressing themselves. But there is no way. Hmm. I I like that. I like I <laughs> all of all of what you just said. I I I deeply appreciate that. Mm. Huh. Or to go on with that the role of an artist today, which I remember I I did talk in the operating system interview. Um, 
I did say something along the lines that the role of an artist is to record experiences, to transcend that experience into the emotional face of society. Mm-hmm. It's the same with, you know, when I play a piece, that it really embodies, it's, as what Leah Fleischer, the great pianist, said, that the star, the star isn't you that's performing, but it is the music that is the star. Mm. In the mm-hmm. end, that really is not about you, it's about, it's about the composer and what he presented to everyone. It's about everyone, really, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That idea that art and anything is, is as artists, we make a question, and the work we create is a reaction to our own inform, like our own imperatives. Yeah. Well, I just like when you when you were that that quote or that idea that it's it's not you the performer that's the star it's the music it it makes me think of like like your role as a as a performer is to be essentially like a a conduit you know it's like you you are the you're the vessel that is the the container or the the pipe which this thing is coming out of and you know it's like because of who you are as an individual performing a piece, like there will be choices that you make, you know, like how long to hold this pause, um, you know, like how long to hold this note, how to, how to, you know, triplet through this phrasing, um, you know, like it will be colored and hued a little bit, but like the, the, the point or like the purpose, it seems of the performer is to be, to be the like the most effective and the most um, yes, like the most apt, mm-hmm. like uh, like I catch you. <laughs> yeah, like the most apt like cup for this thing to exist or this thing to like sit in for to like to hold this this music for however long that it it is to be held and then you know it just it goes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And there's like I've been so usually I I take notes during during my recording. This is pulling the curtain back a little bit for behind the scenes uh, so poetry talk. But I usually audience and Stanford. Um, I usually uh, take notes during the uh, the recording sessions just so if there's anything that I want to throw up in the description or um, you know like make a link to. Um, which I've been doing for this episode, but I've also been writing a lots of just personal notes that I can personally go back to and reference um, because you you have given me a hell of a lot to think about. Um, well, and just or just the idea that like as a like as a as a poet, I'm at, you know it's like you are you are not only like writing your own poems, but you are also by and large given opportunities to like perform or read your own poems and that idea of you know like reading in such a way or or presenting or coming with an intention in such a way that like 
there the the point of a reading is not you it's not you reading the point of the reading is is like it's the thing that you're reading yeah is yeah so it's like in in that respect you know like your role as a reader is to is to be the most like apt vessel for your piece to come at, to flow out of which goes on to the point which is vulnerability that we are yeah. vulnerable people in the end yeah and that's the most integral state to really enjoy yourself i would say it's inexhaustible <laughs> yeah and and like the vulnerability as a, as a or at least as a way that i'm thinking about it as is at least in part like a sense of um like openness or the like the opening up to an experience or the opening up to you know like to whatever this thing is to to be to like to be that receptive to it yes and to go on to even more humbling thoughts it is the idea that really in poetry or to be a poet really is the complete opposite of what society values <laughs> something along the lines of richard sykin's thoughts which is that as a poet you can either choose to have more or you can choose to have less and many do choose to have less because they want more time to create and it really illuminates what one really wants through this vulnerable state what one really values you know mm -hmm. and yeah. that's what drives me to do poetry that you really poetry is very useless <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's the most useless thing of all it it does nothing but makes you feel the things but at the same time i like for some reason we can't live without it therefore yeah. it must be important meaning that we create meaning out of nothing and i think that mm -hmm. is something very very sublime and that's why one should embrace poetry sometime in their lives and I, I think that you, like, I feel like you hit on a sort of, I don't know, I've, I've, I've heard, you know, like, sportscasters or other people talk about something that happens as if it were, like, talking about it as, like, oh, that's, that's poetry, like, poetry in motion, or, you know, like, these, these two boxers, you know, like, that, the, the way that this guy's, that this person moves is poetry. And I think that, like, what you just said, I think, hits at a sort of fundamental, yes. like, like both kind of understood and I think kind of misconstrued, like, not you personally, I think just, like, in general, sort of like a, a sort of understood, sort of misconstrued concept of poetry, like, at its core, that there is this, or maybe sort of understood, sort of not understood aspect of poetry that at its core is there's this, like, in the core, this... it's nothing, really. It's all yeah. personal things to make meaning out of things. And that's what we right. do in poetry. 
Yeah. And I, and I, yeah, that like, that it's like, yeah, that it's at its core, there is more or less like nothing, but it's sort of like, there is a, there is a quality that it has. There's a, there's a presence or like a, a space that it occupies mm-hmm. that like in poetry itself, I think is the, the, you know, like the most, uh, most commonly, uh, encountered Yes. distillation of it but yes. that like that that idea that like that's that there can be this thing that happens in the world that affects you the same way that a poem would that like whatever yes. whatever synapses or whatever like internal reverberations that are that are kicked off with poetry there are other things that are not like written poetry that affect you in a very or can affect you in a similar way um that is like to say said, like that is to say, um, that is to say, I'm trying to, I, I totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that is to say that, okay, going along the lines, that is to say, Nathan Spoon, a poet, often says that poetry is everywhere, we just don't realize it. Or there, mm-hmm. that is to say many writers um, go around and they talk to themselves saying, Oh, I wonder what poem I'll find here. I wonder what mm-hmm. poem I'll find in the supermarket. You know, it's like it goes along the lines of what what you stated that poetry is everywhere. Or yeah. Well, that that reminds me of um, oh, Shiki in his in his um, revamping and revitalizing of haiku in like the early like 1900s or maybe like late 1800s um the idea of uh chasse which is like at least his his understanding of haiku and then the the couple of schools that came out after him dedicated his view of of chasse which is like sketching from life that there are all these like moments that happen around you that if kind of like we were talking about towards the beginning of the recording um like the the shift in perspective or that if you can if you can view something as not just what it is but of like if you can begin to tap into the other possibilities or other the other perspectives or the other facets of this thing that they that there are moments that surround us constantly that given the right light and given the right eye and the right execution like it's a poem or it's it's something that is that is worthy of being um recorded as a poem that is worthy of of trying to connect some some emotional you know like worthy worthy of being put in a position that that it like or maybe worthy of acknowledging that it has the ability that it can stir very deep and specific emotions or feelings or experiences in other people um yes which i guess is is a is a sense of like because I've I've encountered some some poets, um, and I want to say I've I've record I've recorded with maybe one or two of them that like view the their practice of poetry or their um, yeah I guess their poetry practice is not solely a like a writing practice, but of more of a, a lifestyle of like putting themselves like putting themselves in a state where they can be vulnerable or open or receptive to things to like to the world around them where they can see some of like sort of like what Nathan said that like 
their their poems exist, or the the seeds of poems and poetry exists everywhere, and it's yep. just it it requires a certain like recalibration and reacclimation of us in order to enter into that into that state or into that that world that you know it's like it's it's there um and it's it's ripe it's ripe for the picking you just gotta you gotta know where to look and how to pick it yeah hmm okay well um i will i'm now gonna ask you uh the two customary uh final questions of so poetry um the first one is if you have the vocabulary for it what is your internal landscape like because <laughs> we've like we've we've touched or we've kind of danced around this idea and i want to say that like i have i have i think an, an idea of what it would be i'm i'm just curious as to, to see if how close i am to to what it to what it is Okay, so on a very literal level. Mm -hmm. So on the literal, on the literal level of things, sensory things, it would be Bamberg Park. Um, that's a park right by my house, five minutes away. The minute you enter the park, it is a vast field, the greenest field you'll see. And I often go there at 8 p.m. at night, the golden hour. Mm -hmm. and it, would just glisten, it would just glisten across glazed grass. And if you look to the right above, there are transmission towers. And the lines just hang across the entire park and they go on for kilometers. And if you look even higher, oftentimes the cloud often changes and the landscape changes, the, the clouds may be very cumulus, nimbus clouds, stratus clouds, and oftentimes it's what gives me this surreal state. It's more like a landscape of my daydreams in that sense when I walk around the park. And hmm. many things are, I call them, structures from the still because the transmission tower is above it's still the transmission lines they hang like staves and birds just perch on them and there's the sun then there's the clouds then the blue landscape it's almost as if you're totally safe inside there to do whatever you wish to do mm. and at the same time there is because I am there almost every day, there is that two voices that come out. One is the comfort of malice. That is from another chapbook. So the voice of malice and the voice of liberation, which brings about my poems. Now on an abstract level, that is what it is. The voice of malice and the voice of liberation. And the idea that we are often... We never look above, we never look to the skies, I would say, or rarely do we ever look beyond what is given. And I think, just like Richard Sykin, 
I try to find meaning in unrelated things and the idea of memory recall of memory recall being transmission towers that remind me of scenes in the childhood that I did and to even it, it probably foresh it foreshadows a prophecy to landscapes while I was in Japan in the Karizawa adventure. <laughs> It's probably the most surreal place. It's like a dreamscape with principles. That's what I could summarize. I work huh. dreamscape with principles. So I I live on principles, but then there's a freedom to it. And mm -hmm. that's as far as you can go. Hmm. So in the in the I guess the literal interpretation of the internal landscape, is it is the park, like for your your internal park, is it populated with other people? Is it like when you when you are there internally? Is it just you in the space, or is it just the space itself? Like not necessarily, like a, a, a yeah. I guess it's like I'm, when you when you imagine the internal landscape, do you imagine yourself in the internal landscape, or do you imagine just like the park? As the as it sits at like eight o'clock, um. <laughs> it is. It is a particular time. It's like I have to wait for the time to come for the dreams mm -hmm. to happen. And yes, there are people in there. Many people. Okay. I I love being around people. Actually, as quiet as I may seem, <laughs> I I am quite in need of people. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I really need to be around people, um, more or less. Okay, interesting. So I, I was, if we're talking about the the literal interpretation of the landscape, I think I was pretty damn close with what I what I thought that it was, because um, I I called the transmission towers. I knew that those were there, and I knew that the sky was there, um, uh, but. It's it's interesting because I, I feel like ours might be similar in the sense of like the just the like the internal space that it creates. Um, you know, it's like your, yours is the park that extends for you know kilometers, and then you have the sky, which you know once you get above the, like the transmission towers is just open and endless. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that like. Yours is populated, um, yeah. and mine is uh, completely devoid of. I wouldn't say populated. It's like, how would I say? In this vast kilometer, there would be only fifty people. Okay. It's 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 not prevalent. It's like there are right. Yeah. Yes, I just I meant I meant that. The, the main the the main difference that I at least one of the main differences that I can see is that there are that there are uh, other figures that exists in your internal landscape, um, and for mine it's completely like I am I'm only sometimes even barely on mine. Um, do you like? Hmm. Do you feel the like your internal landscapes influence on 
like either either your poetry or your um, your musical performances? No, <laughs> this is okay. A fantasy world. <laughs> okay. But okay, all right, fair enough. Um, okay, and the uh, the customary last question is: Do you have any questions for me, or any any question for me? I guess um, I... on any topic, any anything, if you've ever wanted to ask me, is is fair game. I really don't have any questions to ask. <laughs> okay, that is fair enough. Um, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your favorite poets? Um, so I, I think that, at least currently, um, Charles Wright and Mary Oliver, I think, are the the two that I'm, I'm really kind of deeply into right now. Um, Specifically, Oliver's like earlier collections, um, and specifically of those earlier collections, um, House of Light and, and Dreamwork are like, there's something about those two that more than any of the other ones of, of hers that I have that I keep coming back to. Um, and like, I just, so, Part of I think part of my uh, my appreciation of Mary Oliver is the sense of like there are echoes of of reverberations of of how she writes and how she sees that I can kind of feel in in my work um, that there is a like writing like being in the world and writing about the world not in necessarily a sense because there are corresponding landscapes inside of you and in that writing about the world helps you better understand yourself. It's more of a like a write like writing about a, a place that you're in and like trying to trying to meet and understand the the I guess this the, the surroundings that you find yourself in. Um, and I use despite the fact that I feel like there are analogous uh, landscapes internally that I experience or that I have experienced externally. Um, I think that I use writing more along the lines of trying to suss out a uh, space or try to like, it's sort of like echolocation for me. It's like I, I, I use poetry to, to get sort of a, my bearings or the, the lay of, of a place. Um, and with, with Charles Wright, um, I keep coming back to him because like, I barely understand how he makes some of the moves that he makes in his poems. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like it's something that I really should or that I really need to understand um, because I, I can feel sort of like similar uh, tendencies in my own work. Like the, the way that he would, he would, he'll give sort of like a description, like a very concrete, natural description of like his backyard. Um, but, you know, like backyard at the end of March in the afternoon. Um, and then immediately transition into some sort of like metaphysical or philosophical like question or discussion or just there's this moment of like pure connection 
and pure equanimity that he gives to the, the, the physical, tangible world and the intangible, internal world. Yes. Um, and I, I have been doing similar moves, I think, in my poetry, um, or I've been attempting similar moves. And I think that, like, not, not only do I really just appreciate the way that he writes and his word, word choices and sort of, like, the tone and the, the voice of his poems, but the fact that he can pull off these things feels like it's something vital it's like i i need to figure out how to do this because i'm hurtling very quickly to doing certain things like this and i need to be able to do this well um so um they're up at the top right now but uh jane hirschfield and bay dow are uh in very very close competition <laughs> with with oliver and charles wright um I'm just I haven't been reading a whole lot of them. Like they're they're there and they're influencing me, but I've I've been it feels like I've been more focused on um uh Mary Oliver and uh Charles Wright. Which I feel is like Hirschfield and Baydow got me through um my first chat book. Um so and nobody got me through my second one and now it feels like it's Oliver and Wright getting me through my like next two. So, I don't know. It's state of flux, but those are my sort of like big four with like, you know, Ann Carson and Tom Hennon sort of on the periphery and, um, you know, haiku poets read a lot of haiku. Um, so like the sort of the moves that they, um, the, the, like the distillation of, of experiences down into sort of like the, the scaffolding, the image scaffolding um, is, has been something that even though I'm writing longer poems now than I, than I have been writing, it's, they still sort of operate. They're like, if you took like six or seven haiku and sort of like mushed them together, I feel like my poems are operating sort of along those lines. Um, but yeah, so I, that's I think currently that's I think that's about where I'm at. Got it. Um, but I do have um, I do have Seekin on my uh, stack of books to read. He's way up at the top. Yeah. Um, so I will probably be digging into him in, in the next like week or so. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that's gonna do it uh, for episode 12 um thank you stanford so much for for taking like two hours out of your saturday to talk to me thank um, you for having me yeah this is this has been a really like challenging in the sense of there were things that you said that i wish that i could have just stopped the podcast and like thought about for like three hours um, <laughs> but i couldn't and then I would encounter something else. It's like, oh shit, I need to think about that for like three hours. So there's like, I have a list of things that I need to just dedicate a week, like to just spend like a day, a day, one day each of those weeks thinking about one of these things in particular. Um, but this has been, this has been an incredibly insightful and revelatory uh, conversation. Um, so like for my, for my own personal uh, needs, I guess, <laughs> thank you. Um, 
Um, and I would like to thank uh, all of my listeners, too. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for listening and being a part of, of this, you know, uh, essentially and by proxy a part of this conversation. Um, I hope that it proves to be as revelatory for y'all as it has been for me. Um, but, um, yeah. Uh, is, is there anything, any final words you want to leave us with, Stanford? Don't give up, guys. Ooh. You heard it. Don't give up. <laughs>